Chris Gladwin knows how to stay ahead of the curve. His digital music distribution service, Music Now, launched five years ahead of iTunes and over a decade prior to Spotify. His tablet came out 20 years before the iPad, just as his company Cleversafe, a cloud storage company, burst onto the scene well before cloud technology became a trendy topic. Now, Chris and his new company, Oceant, are building solutions for data analytics problems that companies will face a few years down the road. We talked to Chris to hear his thoughts on what it takes to innovate, disrupt, and promote a powerful vision to tackle problems before they even arise. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's pure source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer. All right, thanks. So uh, I thought I would do kind of this in two sections. Um, first, to elaborate a little bit more on what I've done, uh, I thought I would just tell four stories. And um, part, of, part of my purpose is I want to make sure you guys have a sense of what I've done you know, to help inform you on what questions you might want to ask, or even just topics that you think I should talk a little more about. Uh, and then I was going to talk about kind of the, the work I do, the work of being a technology entrepreneur, and, and, in, and then the, I'm going to tell four more stories about things that I've done. And I try to pick things that are interesting. All right, so a little background about me, you know, in terms of like being uh, ahead of the market. Um, that sounds kind of great sometimes, but it's not always so great. Um, so the first, the, one of the first, I mean, I've worked on a bunch of new things, but one of the first things I worked a lot on was a device um, that uh, was an electronic organizer. And this was in the mid-90s, yeah, mid-90s. And back then, um, you know, paper day timers was something that maybe 60% of all working people used to manage their schedule. And the, the idea of a digital device that would do that was novel, and it was it was pushing the envelope on technology. And so, uh, at that time, I was working here in Chicago at Zenith Data Systems, and and at that time, Zenith Data Systems was the largest portable PC maker in the world. And so, the idea of doing some kind of mobile electronic thing fit in real well with what we did. And so, I put together a deal um, with Zenith Data Systems, the the hardware manufacturer, and we knew a lot about portable things and batteries and you know, little screens, uh, with a software company that was a startup uh, actually in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, and then the company Daytimers itself. Um, and so Daytimers had a brand, they had a distribution channel, they had uh, probably at that time 50 million regular customers or something like that in the United States. And so, you know, we really felt like, you know, here's the leading portable PC maker, you know, the, the leading branded paper version of this thing, and here's this software company that has the kind of expertise about how to build this. And um, that product never made it to market. Um, I have working prototypes, um, really cool. Um, but the, you know, what happened there was you know, one of the challenges of having a, a business partnership like that, as opposed to a startup where it's, it's just kind of doing its own thing, it's master of its own destiny, um, by having a three-way joint venture, uh, a year after we put that deal together, uh, the two of the three CEOs were fired, 
uh, and replaced. And then the third company, the software company, their core product line um, you know, was failing and they were going out of business. So that killed that project. Um, what happened subsequently was there was a product that we had kind of heard about, you know, maybe a, they were a year behind us and they brought it to market um, called the Palm Pilot. And uh, that, that was the product that just took over. And, you know, that, that probably sold 100 million. It just became maybe probably hundreds of millions. It became the thing that, that you know, took over the world. And so I guess the, the lesson there is about perseverance. And th this is the number one piece of advice I give people when they ask me, like, what's the secret to these kind of businesses? And it's to last long enough to realize the success. Because your idea is usually right. We were right. I mean, people wanted an electronic organizer. Um, it also had contacts and note taking. Like, that's functionality that people wanted, even though that was not, that was kind of hard to see because no one was doing it uh, electronically. So that's a good example. Um, and, and there's a million examples where usually in a startup business, you're right about the idea. Go back and look at every one of the crazy dot coms from 1999. We're all doing that, those things that were crazy ideas. Um, I get, we have cats, we get cat food delivered to our house. You know, Pets.com was the poster boy of the dumbest idea ever. But people today get pet food delivered to their house. Um, so the second story is about mobile, mobile tablet computers. So after um, I left Zenith, actually I, while I was at Zenith, I started a division to make mobile tablet computers and we spun that um, out into a company called Cruise Technologies, which was my first real startup and I was still pretty young. But since I had started this division at, at Zenith, I, 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 was, I knew enough to kind of lead that new company. And then, so the story there is like how that actually formed. So Zenith Data Systems, although it was the leading portable PC maker in the world at that time, which is a big deal, it's like Apple today, um, it, it was really a, a flawed company. Um, it, was, it really wasn't making money. And, so then it, it got sold to this company called Packard Bell. And Packard Bell was really a Ponzi scheme in the form of a, a PC company. Um, and you know later, those guys got in trouble um, for the way they ran the business. But my experience with them was Zenith got uh, placed into Packard Bell. And the day the, 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 that, call it an acquisition, closed, they laid my entire division off making these mobile tablet computers. And we told them, like, look, we have these customers that are, you know, federal government customers, sole source product. They're going to they're gonna be pissed. Um, but they didn't care. And so immediately all the federal agencies call and say, hey, wait a second, this sole source product just disappeared. What are you doing? So, um, so then I got a call from the CEO of Packard Bell. And I was still technically an employee, although I had been sent home. And, I'm, and his, his secretary calls me and I'm like, man, I'm really busy. I, I was not at all busy. I was just like lying around my apartment. Can we, can we meet this particular Monday, which was like 10 days from now, which was the first day I technically was not an employee because I didn't want to have a conversation with him when he had that leverage on me. So then I go out to meet him. Um, and just to give you a sense of the way they ran this company, the, the CEO was a former Israeli tank commander and you had to pass three levels of guards. This is, this is a computer company to get to his office, three different guard stations. And the second two, I kid you not, were armed, okay? 
And the, the company was on a former army base in Sacramento. It was crazy. Um, so anyway, I mean, I guess, the, I guess the, the part of the story is like, I was pretty intimidated. I was, I don't know, 30. And here's this guy, you know. Um, and I don't know if he did this on purpose. So like, I'm, I'm, I come into his office. We start talking. He says, oh, hold on. Andy Grove's on the phone. His, his, his secretary walks in. Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel. Um, Quick story, Packard Bell, it turned out, owed Intel $500 million because they were paying late because, like I said, it was a Ponzi scheme pretending to be a computer company. When, when someone owes you, let's say, $500, that's your problem. When you owe someone $500 million, that's their problem. Um, so anyway, um, so anyways, I did this, you know, I did this deal to spin it out. And, and, and I guess... Um, the lesson I learned there was that you know, I was really you know, super intimidated, but you know, I just kind of stuck to what made sense. You know, um, you know, this is the deal we're going to do, and we did that deal, started that company. And you know, in the intro, we talked about how that was 20 years ahead of its time. 20 years ahead of its time is not a good, um, good thing at all. Um, that, that product was way too hard to build in terms of the technology. The market wasn't ready, because I thought at that time, the right way to build kind of a, a disruptive, sustainable technology company was to do something so hard and so ahead of everybody else that no one could imitate it. Um, but uh, I was way ahead of the market. So um, anyways, that's my second story. Um, they're going to get better, uh, these stories. <laughs> this, one's, this one's more interesting, but still not a big uh, success from a business point of view. So then the tablet company, we, we basically, we got it going. We sold you know, 10,000 of these tablets, which is a lot, back because they're like 5,000 bucks each. But that's the kind of business where when you're making hardware, unless you're selling you know, millions or tens of millions, like, it's not a good business. So we, we actually did something very unusual. We had raised venture capital. We hadn't spent it all. And we just said, look, it's not going to go. We, we can't get the volume up. The market's not ready. And we just stopped the company. We gave the money, about half the money back. So then I, I decided to make, um, to get into the digital music business um, because I, I, I decided to make devices for digital music. I was so clueless. Um, I didn't know what a label was when I started that company, like a music label, a music publisher. I had no concept of this. So we start, I started a company to make um, uh, devices to play digital music at a time when digital music didn't exist. I mean, people still bought CDs. Um, and so I went to the Consumer Electronics Show one year, um, and that's where all you know all the companies announced their products for consumer consumer facing technology. And prior to this show, like no big company had any digital music devices planned or announced. At this show, every single one of them announced digital music devices: Sony, Compaq, HP hundreds of these things. And here's this little company. We're not going to compete with that. So I, um, CES back then used to end on a Sunday. And I, so I came back to the office. And uh, by Tuesday, I think it was, or Wednesday, I had laid off the whole hardware team like, sorry. Um, but what we, we did was to feed our device with content, we, we were building digital music services, download stores, um, uh, music subscription services and uh, uh, internet radio. 
And all these hardware companies that were going to make devices needed content, and none of them were making a service. So we decided we're a music service company. Um, and that was here in Chicago as well. So we ended up being the company that first licensed digital music. Um, and this is a guy who didn't know what a music label was. Um, so, uh, so then I, I, the very first license we did the, that was done in the industry for digital music sales or distribution, I did with BMG Publishing. Uh, and they were in, in uh, uh, Manhattan. And to do that deal, I had to hire as a consultant to us, like their former general counsel, because the, the woman that used to work for him, who's now the general counsel who did the deal, used to work for him. You know? And so that's how we kind of got in the door. So I did this, you know, this is, this, is uh, uh, this century, just keep that in mind. And so I'm dealing with this big, huge, multinational technology media conglomerate. It's the first license of digital music ever. And of course, they make me pay some ridiculous advance of, I don't know how many hundred thousand dollars on you know, future royalties. And so we're signing the thing, and I'm like, you think I could get a list of all the songs that I just am licensing? And they're like, what do you mean a list? I'm like, yeah, maybe a list, you know, a unique ID, uh, you know, names, and, you know, categorized. So uh, days later, I have employees literally at their office in Manhattan, fancy, expensive building, big company, in a room with metal shelves, shoe boxes, and three by five cards. That's their system. That's this century for cataloging and managing all the content they sold. And this is like Elvis Presley. I mean, this is like this is BMG Publishing. I mean, this was, um, uh, you know, 20% of all music sales in the United States came through this room. Uh, so that's, that was the state of the art. That was like in 2001. And so we now have to deal with this. Um, unbelievable. So I, I don't know what the point of that story is, other than it is hard. Um, so, I mean, we have now to license. We ended up licensing 10 million songs, ultimately which is the kind of everything that's ever sold in the United States in music. And meanwhile, Napster's happening, and people are pounding the crap out of us, like, why can't you get this stuff licensed? Because I'm dealing with shoeboxes full of paper, three by five cards. Um, and not only that, like, I'm negotiating with people that don't have an email address, and I'm trying to explain digital music. And their number one issue is, like, you go visit them in Manhattan, and they get this office, and there's like these five-foot wood speakers, and they're so proud of them. They have a turntable with like a diamond needle or whatever. And they're, they're going like, why would anyone ever listen to music on a computer? It's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like little headphones? Like, look at my speakers. You know, so, uh, so anyway, um, I, guess, I guess what I would say on that one is things that are obvious now, like digital music, are not obvious at the time. Um, that was not at all obvious. To investors I, I raise money from, like, why would people listen to music on a computer? No idea. Um, seems kind of obvious now, um, but that's kind of how these things go. Um, ne next story, I, I guess I'll say, let's see how we're doing on time. Um, and, and, and what was it, well, what, what ultimately part of what doomed that business was, because the owners of content um, 
they had a business model which was make a song a hit by paying off radio to play it and then put it on a CD and sell it for $15. That was their business model. Kick-ass business model. Here I come rolling in, sell a song for a dollar. It was a tough sell. So they, they did a lot to make, so we, we had a business with exclusive suppliers. Like it, you don't need to do any market research. You already know for music service to be appealing, it has to have all music. You know that. Like the first time you use the music service, first thing you did is look for some obscure song that you love. If it's there, you're in. If not, you're out. So we knew that. I've got, and, and there's only one place to go for every single song. There's one publisher, which is the composition of the song. There's one master rights holder, which is the performance of the song. There's one. And actually, in total, there's thousands of entities. Like, and literally, like we were trying to get this songwriting, and the guy just got divorced, and it's in the court. Like, who gets the rights to this? And we're trying to license this 10 million times over. Crazy. Um, and then, ultimately, the problem was we had exclusive suppliers. We had to get from these people. There's only one place for every piece of content. And they really didn't want to enable us to sell their goods. And they put so many roadblocks up. That was tough. And meanwhile, we're competing on the demand side with unlimited free unlicensed as Napster and Kazaa and all the early music sharing services break out. Um, it's very difficult to compete with that. So we did okay. We, we dominated the market for digital music services in the kind of the pre-iTunes era. Um, every, so our, our model was business to business. So we didn't, we kind of had a house brand, but mainly what we did is, other than Rhapsody, which was their own B2C service, every other music service in the United States was us. Like it would be Microsoft, it would be Best Buy, it would be Earthlink, you know, all these brands. But behind the scenes, every single one of those services is us. And there was huge economy of scale. E even then, we couldn't make that business go. We sold it to Circuit City. And it was an example where we had executed on everything we could possibly do. We licensed all music. I had distribution. Like, every hour, there'd be 10 million impressions through all these brands. And, and uh, anyway, we, we couldn't execute anymore. And, and we realized we have developed a not so great business and we sold it to Circuit City for not a lot of money. All right, so now it's gonna get better. Um, my next company was called Cleversafe. Um, so the way I started Cleversafe was um, I, I had an experience actually at Music Now where I, we built a system to store all music in the world and back then that was pretty big. Today it would be like one server. But back then it was like two rooms of servers. And um, we bought a system to store all that. We actually bought three systems. We bought two from, two from Dell, one from Sun, because that's just how you did it. Like, because storage is not reliable, well then buy three of everything. I understand how that's good for the vendor, but that, I'm the customer, like that sucks. And then not only that, they were terrible. I mean, so I had this experience of like, okay, this is the state of the art and it's awful. Um, so, I kind of knew going in that th there was a huge opportunity. So what I did was, um, and, and, and actually the, the quality of data storage systems at that time got worse as the systems got bigger. So as you, as you needed a bigger and bigger system, the systems just got worse and worse. They got slower, less cost efficient, less perform, you know, less uh, reliable. So I knew that. And so then, in some ways it was really simple. So I said, 
of all the data storage systems in the world in 2004, what's the biggest five out there? How big are they? All right, that's going to be that and above is what we're going to make, things that are that big. So how big is YouTube? All right, that's what we're going to make. Because today, that's this custom-built crazy thing, but five years from now, 10 years from now, that's normal. And I knew that the way that everyone else, all the other vendors were making these systems couldn't go there. They couldn't go to that size. So I knew there was this huge opportunity. And, uh, and, and what we ended up doing was taking techniques that were decades proven from wireless communications, uh, networking, the internet in particular, and cryptography and applying them to data storage. And um, totally different way of doing things. Um, we challenged the most basic assumption that there is in data storage before we showed up the way that people would store data is they would, they would take data as always a bunch of numbers, and they would just write those numbers on some kind of media, like a disk or a tape, and they'd usually make a bunch of copies because one copy is not good enough. Um, and then you know, when you'd read it, you'd just read the numbers back. The, the problem with that method is anything that happens in the real world, which bad things happen all the time, things break, bits flip, you know, people break into systems, if, if that happens in the real world, it happens to your data. So um, the beginning, you know, our, our big idea began with, well, what if you stored the data without storing the data? What if you virtualize the data itself? So you take data, which is just numbers, you do some funky math, make new numbers, store the new numbers, and when you read it, you recalculate the original numbers, and by disassociating the real world from the storage, you could engineer these properties into the math that did all kinds of wonderful things. And you know, the wonderful things we did is we made it uh, way cheaper. We could, we could build systems that had the properties of reliability as though you made seven copies, but when you physically add the bits, it would be less than two. It'd usually be about 1.3 to 1.5. So you just save a ton of money. You, know, you don't need as many servers, you don't need as much, much electricity, and, and a bunch of other really cool stuff. So that was that one. Um, and then we ended up dominating that market. So any, when we sold it to IBM, any system in the world that's at least 100 petabytes, which would be 100,000 terabytes, that's not home-built, um, that we had 100% market share. Uh, no one else could do that. And you use it every day. Um, back behind the scenes where when you do things, you know, back behind the scenes, the, the systems that are receiving that data, storing it and returning it, um, uh, at least when we sold it, if it was really big, that was us. So that's what we did. So that's a little background on me. Um, I'm going to shift then to uh, kind of what I do and some stories about that. So in the work that I do, you know, there's four things that I think comprise the work. Um, and it, it comprises the work of pretty much every kind of entrepreneur. Uh, one of them is opportunity identification and sales, which to me are the same thing, especially in the early stage. Um, you know, you gotta find, you gotta find these situations where people that have money that want to pay because it's valuable have a problem they can't solve, and that sounds really obvious, but um, I mean that's how you do it. So, like when I did CleverSafe, I had just come from Music Now, and I'm like, I was a customer. Products suck. Here's why they suck. Here's the problem I can't get solved. Every vendor, I mean, we were a big, huge customer, came in and you know gave us the pitch. Like, here's why we're. You know, our stuff is going to be great. And every time I'm like, this isn't great. This is terrible. So I knew there was an opportunity. 
Um, the way I started my current company, Oceant, um, so Cleversafe, we sold to the 200 largest data storing organizations on the planet. I spent 10 years selling to them. I knew them all. Um, and what started to happen was a number of them started to say, you know, I got this need that involves not only a storage system that's enormous, but I need to analyze data at a scale and speed that I can't find any vendor that can even lie to me and tell me they can do that. Um, so I heard that four times from these kind of customers, and I was like, hold that thought, let me get back to you. Um, and that's, that's when we started Ocean. It was really just that simple. And so, you know, every business is like that. I mean, a business at the end of the day is people are gonna give you money to do something and it's gonna cost you less than they're gonna give you to do it. I mean, that's, that's it. And if you don't have that, um, it's not gonna happen. So when people start telling you, especially people that spend like a billion dollars a year on IT in my world, which is large scale IT, when they start telling you that consistently, uh, that, that's, that's the rocket science. Like listen, write it down, ask them some questions to elaborate. That's your business plan, uh, chapter one. So that's kind of part of it. And even, even once you kind of get into the market, a lot of what you want to do is you want to build a pipeline of information from the customers to your company. It's not just through you, but you want your product managers and your developers and your marketers and your salespeople to be learning all this stuff in an efficient way. Like what new problem do they have and what do they mean when they say it's too slow? You know, like you basically want to build this pipeline of information and let your, at least in, in my world, which is business, like business to enterprise, not just business to business, but business to big business customers. You want to let them be your product manager and, and, and tell you what they want, and they will do it. Um, and, and they will be right. <laughs> you know, if you try to guess because you think you're really smart, um, you don't know. Um, so anyways, that's, that's one thing that we do. Um, another thing you do in these kind of businesses is you have to, um, it, it's really, I, I think a lot of the leadership comes from communication. Um, so a lot of what you do is you, you identify these opportunities, you learn to describe them. You know, like at Cleversafe, you could hear me already say like, well, if you have at least, I mean, generally like at least a petabyte, okay, that was, and now I'm qualifying customers and I'm, and it, you know, the sales force will understand, like ask the customer if they have a petabyte. If yes, sell, if no, you know, thank them for the time and leave. I mean, and it gets a little more sophisticated than that, but like that's an example where you gotta define like, what are we doing? Um, so you gotta have, a, you know, the vision, um, you're conceptualizing a product, uh, you know, when you're doing disruptive new things, like, it seems so obvious today that um, you want to listen to music on your computer, and the way you consume that is you buy a song at a time, is, is, is the primary model for purchase. That seems blindingly obvious today. Trust me, that was not blindingly obvious to the whole music industry for years. Um, that was, actually, that was the breakthrough that put iTunes on the map period. Um, and um, that seems so obvious, that little thing, but I, I can tell you there were tens of music services built by all kinds of smart people that didn't have that feature. Um, anyway, so um, figuring that out, like that is what the customer really wants, that's what the market really wants, and then communicating that back, I mean that's like, that's the job of leadership. Um, it's not like, oh, you know, let's go without any kind of structure of what does go mean. 
you know, you, you got to say, this is what we're making, this is why we're making, you know, and then build that um, and communicate that vision. So, you know, a big part of, you know, building disruptive products is defining the concept, the vision, the product, the company, and communicating it to the company as well as its constituents. It sounds super easy, but it's really actually hard. And you'll find that so many companies, when you ask them to describe, like, why, why would I buy your product? Like, they, they, they can't articulate it. Um, another thing you do in these kind of companies, at least for what I do in particular, like you have to raise a ton of money generally. Um, if you're going to build technology that enterprises are going to use, um, you know, I could clever say if it's $100 million to build one of those, and that's the, the super cheap low end. I mean, previously when we came into that industry, the rule of thumb for a new storage enterprise storage platform was like 200 to $250 million, and we did it for 100. Um, so you're going to spend some time fundraising. You know, at Music Now we raised 42 million. Um, I, I was thinking about this when I made these notes. I have spent about 200 million dollars, which is crazy. If you ever went to any of my offices, including the current one, you looked around, you would not say to yourself, "This is a person that has spent 200 million dollars." Every office I've ever been in, the furniture is generally what was left by the prior tenant. Every once in a while, we have to buy it. Um, but you know, you, you know, you go hire 100 people, and you work on a problem for five years, and like, it really goes. Um, so anyways, fundraising is a big part of that. And the lesson I've learned from fundraising is the, the best investors, and really the only investors you should, you should target, are the most informed investors. You need to think about most informed for your business. So if you have a business, you need to say, what, what are the characteristics of an investor that would know the most about this exact business? So at Music Now, we, um, you know, there was this new product that had just come out, TiVo. It just had their IPO. And many of the characteristics of TiVo, we were, we, we were doing in Music Now. Um, TiVo was kind of making television content consumable in a new way. You know, you could pick the things you want, you could have a library, you could play on demand. Oh, we're doing that kind of stuff uh, with music. So I, I decided I'm going to go, and, and they had just had an IPO and made a ton of money. So I said, I'm going to go to that group. And that would be the best investor, because like, it was the closest analog to what we, were trying, what we thought we were going to do. Um, so it took me forever you know, to get to these investors. They're busy. They just got rich. The last thing they want to do is talk to somebody they don't know. So I had to spend all this time figuring out how to get the right introduction, finally get a meeting. I go into the meeting, slide one, TiVo for music. They were done. You know, they, they just looked at, who's the team? Can they build this? Yeah, they can build this. TiVo for music, we're good. There were some other slides, um, but it really, it was done. And, you know, that, that's an example where they really knew the market, and they had already been thinking, I want to do TiVo for music, and here's this person that shows up with this team that knows how to build this kind of stuff, like, we're in, let's go. Um, I've been in situations also where you go to the most informed investor or investor group and they say, I'm not interested. And what that means is not that you should go find less informed investors and see if they will invest. What that means is there's something wrong with your idea or the investment. You need to fix that. Because if the most informed investor doesn't want to do it and you just start saying, well, I'll just go to the slightly less informed, oh, okay, well then maybe they're not so informed, and they invest, it's not gonna work. Um, the odds are you're in trouble. So 
when you want to get investors, you want to get the most informed. Um, so my, my final thought, and then we'll do some questions, uh, is team building. So the other thing that you do in this kind of work is you build teams. Um, and I remember when I was younger and I worked, at, I worked at some big companies and there would always be executive presentations there. I said, oh, the team, it's all about the team, blah, blah, blah. And I, I didn't really believe it. I thought it was kind of condescending actually because I didn't think they treated at least some of my experiences people that well. Um, but you can do it in, you know, where it genuinely is all about the team, particularly for most, most kind of businesses that exist today are human capital business. It's not like it's a mine, you know, where you've got like more gold in your mind than the next guy. Like that's not what you're gonna make 99.99% um, .99 of the time. You're gonna make a business that is really about human capital, like how well the people think and communicate, um, particularly anything with software. Software is just taking the thoughts of engineers and, and, and expressing that in the form of software. And so, what makes it great includes things like, you know, that how good is the communication from the customer? And, you know, a lot of what sales and marketing people do and product managers do is get great information packaged in a form that's actionable to the development team. Uh, and then, you know, developers, you know, particularly of software, they're, they're taking that uh, context and embodying it in a product. And so, you know, if you have a great team, um, it works. So I'll give you um, two thoughts about that. One is, the other thing you find is that how you get great people is by having great people. Um, you know, it's, like if you, it doesn't matter what position, whether it's sales or marketing or, or dev or anything, it's very unlikely that if your first five hires in development are mediocre, that the next five are gonna be outstanding. There's all kinds of reasons why that won't happen. Um, if you start outstanding, you, you hopefully can stay outstanding, but it doesn't get better. And you know, you see this so many times in businesses, you go back and read about their history, the initial team is really, really good. And they're, they're able to maintain that. Um, the other, the other um, I guess, story I'll tell, so at CleverSafe, when we would sell these enormous storage systems, and you know, if, you're, if you're selling a system, and what we sold was like the thing that stores everything, like this is the big store of everything that you do as an enterprise. It's not like this little thing that's not that important. Like it's the banking system. That's what's stored there, the banking system. That can't fail. Um, it's a company whose market cap is, I don't know, half a trillion dollars. That's what you're storing. You know, that's a big deal. It's a government agency, national security, something like that. Um, so that's, that's, that's a tough sell. Um, and so we would, ask, we would ask those customers when they would pick us, like why did you pick us? I mean, it was a bake-off, there's 36 companies, all these big companies, these, you know, these other startups, and we win. Why did we win? And they would always say the exact same thing. It's because you had better people. Um, you know, uh, and that's it, because what they, as the customer, a smart customer knows, is they can't really evaluate exactly how good it is, because it's really complicated. Let's say you have 50 or 100 engineers that work on something for five years. Like, there's like a couple hundred person years of development, like they're gonna like read the source code and no, oh no, no, this, this architecture is not gonna scale. Like, it's really hard for them 
to see that stuff. So what they can evaluate is the quality of the people. And what they know is if the people are kick-ass, then, it, then it's real. And it's really good in ways they can't even understand. And they'll never understand. The, the other thing they know, these kind of sophisticated customers, is that no matter what, there's going to be issues. No matter what. And what's going to determine, and by the way, if I'm the customer and there's an issue, this is my job we're talking about. What's going to determine whether or not that's OK or out I go is how good the, the vendor's people are. Because someone's going to save the day, uh, and it's going to happen. And, and you know, maybe you might have engineered things so that you know, it's not necessarily going to get that bad. But even there's, then, there's going to be issues. So if you have an outstanding team of people in terms of their competence, you know, their dedication, you know, like they really are into this stuff. Like this is their child. And if there's any little blemish on it, they're like personally offended and they're going to just stay up all night and fix it. That's what they want to see. And if, and if you've got that kind of attitude from a you know, really talented, outstanding person, they know like it's going to get taken care of. So that's really what they're buying. And I think a lot of businesses are like that where, you know, especially a human capital kind of business, you, the vendor or the, the customer is really buying from the vendor the quality of the people. And that's, that's, that's what these businesses are about. So as, you know, as a you know, leader in a company like that, uh, you, you got to create that situation where there's outstanding people that are kind of properly, um, probably motivated, but I don't want to imply that you motivate them, really. They, they have to be motivated from within. And, to a great degree, your job as the, the leader is not to get in their way and screw it up. That's our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast. Don't forget, for more information about the Ivy community and to find out about live events happening near you, visit ivy.com. That's ivy.com. See you next time. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's pure source of water. Smart Water copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smart Water also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer.